A new solar sail takes wing this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. I bet you think I'm referring to Light Sail 2. Ha! Not this time, loyal subjects. We'll spend time today with Les Johnson, principal investigator for NEA Scout, a solar sail that will leave Earth on the first Space Launch System rocket. Propelled by light, it will set out for a near-Earth asteroid. Are you a math fan who has been hoping for a more numerological space trivia quiz from Bruce Betts? Your dreams come true on this week's What's Up. We start with a visit to France. That's where our senior editor, Emily Lakdawalla, reports from on her mobile phone. Emily, where exactly are you in France and what have you been up to? I'm in the southern France city of Toulouse, where I have just spent a day visiting CNES, the French National Space Agency, and seen all kinds of projects, uh, both in Earth orbit and beyond, and uh, preparing for orbiting Earth pretty soon as well. Very exciting. And you got a chance to speak there as well? I did. Every time I visit a research institution or a space agency, I always give my presentation about how amateur imagers, amateur image processors all around the world are ready and waiting to work with space image data to make beautiful photos that will help space agencies promote their mission. More evidence of why we call you, among other things, the uh, planetary evangelist. Uh, Let's turn to your October 22nd blog post at planetary.org about Bepi Colombo, which has gotten off to a good start. As any spacecraft hopes for, it had a nominal launch. It's the (laughs) highest praise you can get from an engineer. Everything went great, and the spacecraft is on its way for its seven-year trajectory toward Mercury. As any spacecraft does, when it first launches, it extended its solar panels. And one of the cool things about this mission is it has tiny little cameras to monitor deployments. And we got a self-portrait of those solar panels returned the same day as launch, confirming that they had deployed successfully and also that we can expect really cool pictures from those cameras in the future. Some of those images are uh, in this blog entry at planetary.org, as is this really terrific graphic that displays the incredibly complicated trajectory that this spacecraft is going to follow. That's right. And the graphic was produced by our designer, Lauren Roberts, for the most recent issue of the Planetary Report, which features an article by Elsa Montagnon of the European Space Operations Center, who um, is the one in charge of uh, getting Bepi Colombo to Mercury via Earth, Venus twice, Mercury five or six times before it enters orbit. It's going to be a long journey, but it'll be worth it. It's going to be a spectacular mission. And Elsa, a recent uh, guest of this program, talking about this mission to Mercury. Just one more thing here. You have included this very colorful, quite literally colorful, infrared video of the launch. How did this come about? Yeah, this is really cool. So this video of the launch was taken by a scientist who's in charge of an infrared instrument on the Bepi Colombo mission. And so quite appropriately, he used a thermal infrared camera to watch the launch and was uh, really excited about seeing his spacecraft successfully launch toward its uh, trans-Mercury trajectory and all of it done in infrared, where you can see the, the white-hot uh, uh, flame of the, of the high-temperature launch vehicle. It was really pretty cool and just so appropriate because, uh, after all, that's how the mission is going to be. That's how his instrument is going to be serving Mercury. 
You can even watch the hot passion of some of the uh, people observing this as they are outlined also in this infrared image. Thank you, Emily, or I should say merci beaucoup. Enjoy the rest of your stay there, and we'll talk to you when you get back. Will do, Matt. That's the senior editor for the Planetary Society, our planetary evangelist, Emily Lakdawalla. You couldn't have thought we'd let the chance to talk about a solar sail pass us by. After all, the excitement is building as the Planetary Society's LightSail 2 waits for its ride into space on the next SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket. But the Society is not the only game in town. From a distance, in space anyway, you might have trouble telling LightSail 2 and NASA's NEA scout apart. Dig deeper, as we were about to do with Les Johnson, and you'll learn that there are important differences in their designs and missions. Les is a physicist at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama. He was out of town when I visited there recently, so we connected not long ago online for a conversation about this innovative little light ship. Les serves as principal investigator on the mission. Les, thanks so much for joining us on Planetary Radio. Uh, It is a special honor to uh, welcome a fellow solar sailor. (laughs) Well, it's an honor to be here. It's an exciting topic. It really is. I mean, you know, it's one that's uh, very near and dear to our hearts at the Planetary Society because of LightSail 2, which uh, I I know that you are uh, collaborating with uh, representatives from here. In fact, you told me you were just with uh, my colleague Bruce Betts a couple of weeks ago at a conference that I think we'll get to. But first... Tell us about this solar sail, uh, this little six-unit CubeSat, and and what you're planning to do with it. Well, the the Near Earth Asteroid Scout is is going to be the U.S.'s first interplanetary solar sail, and it'll be the first mission that NASA will have flown with a sail that actually has to go achieve science. We have a have a requirement not just to demonstrate that the solar sail works, but we will be uh, carrying in our little spacecraft a camera and taking about a two and a half year cruise using solar sail propulsion to take us to do science at a near-Earth asteroid. It's called 1991 VG. It's got a really exciting name. Uh, 1991 is the year (laughs) it was discovered. And we will be doing a fairly close flyby within about half a kilometer with a camera just basically to see what one of our neighbors looks like. We're scouting out the neighborhood. And that's, uh, that's why we were created. And this is a flyby. You're not going to be sticking around. Uh, you're going to be moving on possibly to someplace else? Well, with a solar sail, you, you really can't stop. Uh, the sun's always shining, which is one of the benefits of a sail, right? It gives you that continuous low thrust. And that means that when you get close to your destination, if you don't jettison the sail, which is too complicated for our flight, we really just have to uh, slow down the spacecraft to as slow as we can, which will be a few meters per second, maybe as much as 10 meters per second and do our science as we do a slow flyby. But with a sail, you don't run out of gas, right? I mean, you're using that solar photon pressure. So after we get the images back, we'll decide if we saw enough of the asteroid. And if we did, we will look at other possible targets and see if we can get approved an extended mission to maybe go visit one of them. If we don't, then we need to get more images from the asteroid. Uh, The benefit of the sail is we can use it to basically turn around and go back. And within a couple of months, we would do another flyby and take more pictures of it. That's really going to showcase the benefit of the sail, not just getting there, but the flexibility once we get on destination. 
That is a, uh, a great outlook for the, the goals of this mission. Uh, you say you've got the camera. What other instrumentation, if any, do you carry? Well, that's it. Uh, we are a, a spacecraft that's been forced to fit in a very, very small package. <laughs> People call it a CubeSat, and CubeSat kind of brings up an image of, of a whole host of components that have flown on these little things in Earth orbit. We would love to be able to use those, but most of those aren't qualified for deep space. Uh, once you get out of uh, the Earth's uh, protection of its magnetosphere, you have to worry about all the, the solar system, the radiation environment out there. And it's just a very different environment than LEO. So we are a fully functional interplanetary spacecraft uh, in a 6U CubeSat form factor. What that means is that we don't have a lot of room for a lot of instruments. So the long, long way around answering your question is we only have the camera and everything else is devoted to the flight system. You found room for uh, one feature that uh, is not on LightSail 2, and that is that you've got this uh, uh, thruster system, right? We do. Uh, we have a, a cold gas thruster system, and it was necessary for a couple of reasons. One is that when we're kicked off our, uh, our ride off the space launch system, the uncertainty in the direction we'll be heading it could result in us impacting the moon. And so we had to have enough uh, cold gas to give us enough impulse so that we can miss the moon in case we're on a bad trajectory and go into orbit around it. And then during the flight, uh, we'll have some residual propellant, which we'll use along with our reaction wheels to offload the momentum that's built up from the solar radiation pressure on the sail. So it's going to help us a little bit with our attitude control as we fly as well. We will, of course, put up links where people can take a look at a near-Earth asteroid, Nia Scout. Uh, there are some fun animations as well, a, a really cute one of people who must have spent an afternoon folding your sail. It looked like a, a nice party, actually. I'm also wondering about additional comparisons to LightSail, LightSail 2. If you saw the two of these side-by-side -side deployed, uh, would they look very different? No, they, they, they would look different uh, at the surface because LightSail uh, is four quadrants. The Nia Scout is a whole sail, not in quadrants. And so if you looked at the surface of it, it would look like a very different sail uh, technology. But when you look at the backside and the booms that are, that are going to be holding the sail, uh, the type of material that's used is a little bit different, but not dramatically different. You can tell they have a common heritage. And the reason for that is uh, we, we all learned from our NanoSail D 10 square meter deployment test that we flew on a 3U CubeSat. At least NASA Marshall flew that in 2010. And we shared a lot of that design detail with your team or at the Planetary Society team. And then they started designing the light sail. And as they were doing that, we were doing our design of NIA Scout. And we have an agreement with the Planetary Society to share data. And so we were invited and participated in uh, the Planetary uh, Society's design reviews, and they participated in ours. And so there's been a lot of crosstalk as we've designed both of these systems. I think we've both learned from each other. I have no doubt. And it sounds like you'll be following the mission of LightSail 2, uh, assuming that uh, it does uh, make its way up into space on the uh, second launch of the Falcon Heavy before too long and probably before uh, the EM-1 mission, that first flight of the space launch system, that big rocket uh, that's going to carry you up into, uh, into space. Well, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to the flight. Uh, any flight of a sail is going to have my complete attention. <laughs> so absolutely, I'm looking forward to it. And I wish, wish them all the success in the world. Thank you. Yeah, we appreciate that. You, you mentioned deployment, using booms to do this, which is 
again, how LightSail uh, is also deploys its sales. Describe that a little bit better. I mean, how do you unfurl these big sales? Unfurling the sales is a huge challenge. Our sale is 86 square meters. If, if you're like me, you don't think in square meters. So just imagine a school bus by a school bus. We can invent our own unit of measurement and call it a school bus squared uh, of area. But that's how big our sale is. And it has to fit in a box that is smaller than your typical trash can. You have to fit that in. You have to fit your camera in, all your flight system in there. So it has to compact into a very, very small volume. In order to do that, you've got to have uh, these big booms. Our booms are over 21 feet long, four of them. And they coil up on a spool and are under incredible uh, tension. The strain energy on those is really high. And what that means is if you were just to uh, cut it loose for, for deployment, it would be like a reverse tape measure retraction. Uh, you know, when you push a button on your tape measure, the, the, the metallic tape just pulls right into the, to the box. Well, these booms want to deploy and they have a lot of energy and they would pop out really quickly. And that would be dangerous because it could, could damage the sail they would unfurl so fast. So we have a, a geared motor deployment to slow them down. So we slowly but surely let them come out of the uh, deployment system with a stepper motor. And as these booms uh, push outward, there are four of them coming out of the central box. The tip of the booms are attached to the corners of the sail, which is folded and wrapped on a spool. So as these booms deploy, uh, the spool slowly spins and the sail comes off of it and unfolds. If, if you, you mentioned you had a, a link maybe to some of our deployment tests, it's a lot easier to, to understand when you look at it than hearing me describe it. Yeah, and we will, as I said, we'll put up a link to that because it is, it's a really charming video. It's, it's really fun to watch. Uh, similar to what we did with LightSail, although it is really cool to watch this thing unspooling from the center uh, rather than just sort of emerging from the little, uh, the four little containers that we have on LightSail too. But I'll tell you, can, can you imagine watching that video, what the most entertaining portion of it was? I'll tell you, it was the balloons. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you have a problem trying to test these large flexible structures in the Earth's gravity well because basically gravity wants to pull it to the ground and it causes friction. So when we were doing the deployments, we used a low friction table, but that wasn't enough. And as these long metallic booms go out, they want to bow down toward the ground, which will basically stop the deployment. So we stopped at uh, a local uh, grocery store and picked up some party balloons <laughs> And attached them, uh, the helium balloons attached them to the tips to give them a little bit of lift so that they wouldn't drag during deployment. And you're right. Uh, you know, it's one of those uh, low-tech solutions on a high-tech test that worked really well. It was uh, very cost-effective and it worked. It did exactly what we needed. Talk about a party. I mean, actual party balloons. <laughs> oh, we had a party. Believe me, after this was all finished, we celebrated. It was, it was refreshing after all that work to see a successful deployment. That was uh, most recent was of our actual flight sail. So it's our only deployment of the flight sail, and it has now been refolded and respooled and ready for integration into the uh, spacecraft. What's it going to take to uh, keep this uh, solar sail on the trajectory toward uh, toward the asteroid? I mean, is it any easier than uh, orbiting the Earth where you're constantly having to reorient the sail? No. Uh, in fact, it's going to be one constant reorientation as we, uh, as we fly. One of the issues that we have is the optimum angle for flying the sail to reflect sunlight to get the thrust in the direction you want isn't necessarily compatible with the best angle 
for generating power with your solar panels mm. and with communicating to the Earth. So in fact, we will be reorienting the sail in the spacecraft all the time during our flight. Uh, there'll be times that we have to leave our optimum thrust angle in order to call home and provide data and status back to the Earth and get commands from the Earth. There'll be other times where the solar panels are pointing the wrong direction for too long and the battery starts getting drained and we have to point the panels at the sun, which causes us to thrust in the wrong direction that we then have to go back and correct for. So our trajectory to get to the asteroid, which is about two to two and a half years, depending on exactly when we launch, is filled with uh, both the thrust to get us there and corrections we have to make when we end up thrusting the wrong direction to take care of power and communications. <laughs> Steering a, a solar sail, I would imagine, is not yet really a science, although it certainly has science elements. I mean, it, it really strikes me as being maybe a bit of an art. Well, it will be. Uh, it, it's, it's got a lot. I mean, of course, we have the analysis to show what we have to do, it, and we'll have commands that we'll upload at every, every step of the way for, for doing this control. But I would say for the first several weeks or month, we're going to be getting used to how our ship sails. Hmm. And uh, you, when, you, when you deploy the sail, if there's one boom that doesn't quite get as much tension on one side of the sail as another one, you have a little bit of differential thrust on it. You have to account for that. If you end up with a small tear, that affects what your thrust angles end up needing to be and how you balance the solar photon pressure off the sail. So it really will be the same as a shakedown cruise. It, it'll be the first few weeks just learning how to fly our ship. Is any of this going to be automated or at least pre-programmed, or do you have to be in more or less real-time touch with the spacecraft? No, 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 no. We'll, we'll, after the first few weeks, we'll be more and more automated in terms of how the system flies. Uh, we, we, it would cost way too much money to have to have real-time control over this 24-7. So I would expect that we'll have some pretty intense operations for the first few weeks, but we'll upload software that'll take care of most of this autonomously and then just check in with the craft periodically. Let's talk more about uh, your your ride up into space on, on that big SLS. Uh, you're with quite a crowd of uh, of CubeSats that are uh, catching that ride as secondary payloads. That's correct. There are 13, at last count, uh, 6U CubeSats that will be in the uh, upper stage of the SLS. And after the Orion is sent on its way to the moon, those CubeSats will be kicked out one at a time uh, in, an, in an order that's uh, to be established. I'm not sure exactly where we are in that order. And uh, the CubeSats will be kicked out to start their operations. And it's kind of interesting the school bus analogy continues because uh, the, the points at which these uh, CubeSats are deployed are called by the uh, launch vehicle bus stops. <laughs> and so there'll be different bus stops uh, that'll be uh, places where these CubeSats will be deployed, and we're at one of those stops. It's quite a mission, uh, and I imagine it's uh, pretty exciting in itself just being on the first flight of uh, the space launch system. Uh, well, I've been focusing on the sailcraft. I think we are exciting by ourselves. Yeah, uh, we, we are excited to be on the rocket, and uh, it's it's exciting to see us uh, developing that capability for for sending humans and large payloads into space for the first time in a long time, and uh, deep space, really big payloads into deep space. To be out there as a demonstration on that first flight of the capability is awesome. And, and I have to mention that the reason that we're there is because there are very few rides beyond Earth orbit. Most rockets that launch today, including what you're riding on with LightSail, is an Earth orbital mission. And for us, in order for us to really showcase the capability of a sail to go anywhere in the inner solar system, 
the optimal way to start is to be on a rocket that takes you beyond Earth orbit, that puts you out into space where you've already got Earth escape. Uh, you don't have to spend any of your time spiraling out of the gravity well. And so it's really an optimum ride for us. I want to talk to you about the what appears to be the promising future of solar sailing in general, uh, and you know the pretty limited experience that we uh, we humans have had so far. But I, I guess we could point to the uh, the Icarus mission from the Japanese uh, space agency. I mean, that was a pretty innovative sail, wasn't it? It was in uh, 2010. The Japanese flew a uh, approximately a uh, little over 200 square meter sail, a spinner, a spin stabilized, as opposed to three axis, which means ours. And yours basically are like a sail uh, and are, are stable and you can steer it, but it, it's not spinning all the time. They, they did a, a complete spinning spacecraft. Theirs demonstrated that you could use a sail to uh, change the thrust of a spacecraft in deep space. And they successfully did that and sent data home, but they really didn't use the sail to go anywhere. They didn't have a destination driven mission where they had to get from point A to point B in a certain amount of time. It was, a, it was a very good proof of concept, and it was something that helped motivate our team because it proved for the first time that you actually get the solar radiation pressure that you think you can get with these large, flexible structures. So it was a great first step, uh, but it really didn't demonstrate the capability I think we all want to see with sails, which is using these to take, uh, for now anyway, small spacecraft anywhere in the inner solar system. What is the promise of, uh, of solar sail technology? I mean, where, where should or where can these be taking us? Well, I think for, for science, the killer app, to use that term, is probably for advanced warning of solar storms. In the future, uh, both NASA and NOAA want to take spacecraft closer to the sun and have it stay there on the Earth-Sun line uh, to give you more advanced notice of, of solar storms, uh, space weather events. Right now, those are warnings come in from spacecraft that are in the uh, L1 region, which is kind of a quasi-stable position between the Earth and the Sun, where spacecraft will stay there and always between the, be between the Earth and the Sun. So if a, st a storm's coming out, you can get, get warning of that back here by radio and batten down the hatches on some spacecraft. But you can use a sail to go closer to the Sun and thrust continuously so you're not in a different orbit and you stay on that Earth-Sun line. And you can have instruments there to give you uh, much more warning of these storms coming. There's another application for studying the sun, which is looking at the North Pole of the sun. If uh, people have been following news from space over the last couple of years, you'll have the surprising views of Saturn's North Pole with the hexagon yeah. uh, cloud structures there that no one expected. Uh, the recent pictures that have come back from Jupiter's polar regions, from Juno, which uh, gave uh, structures that no one expected. And we've very rarely, almost never had glimpses of the sun's polar regions. And there are a whole host of scientists who want to study that. And a solar sail is a way you can do that. You go toward the sun and use that solar radiation pressure to slowly but surely increase your orbital angle so that you're flying over higher and higher inclinations over the sun and you can do science there. Those are, in my opinion, will be the near-term applications of the technologies that, that we're developing. How about additional missions to uh, near-Earth objects that would be you know, relatively inexpensive by the nature of solar sailing? Well, that was the reason NIA Scout was, was originally funded. It was to show that you could use these spacecraft as low-cost reconnaissance of the neighborhood. NASA is interested in studying asteroids for science. Uh, there's also interest in potential reconnaissance uh, for planetary defense applications. Uh, you have commercial companies out there that say they want to mine asteroids. 
And I would suspect that before you want to do any of these things, you want to do a survey mission and you want to do that as low cost as possible. And we believe that a solar sail CubeSat approach like we've developed with Neoscout can do that. Hmm. In fact, we looked at what the, the cost of a second unit where you've done all the design work, which is what's people intense and what's expensive. But a second flight unit, if you wanted to build just a copy of it without any changes, it'd be on the order of less than $10 million, which is a pretty low-cost interplanetary science mission. Also, So um, once we've flown, we'll have demonstrated it. And, and anybody who wants to go send a swarm of these out, uh, they'll have the ability to do that. Let's go farther out, a lot farther out. I, I bet you're familiar with the work of the late Robert Forward and others on uh, on using sails to go interstellar distances. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Robert Forward was a personal friend of mine. We talked at length about this, both with his science work and his science fiction work. He's been in my, he was in my home. Wonderful, creative thinker. And he pioneered the original analysis that proved that this would be possible that you could use uh, large solar sails and extremely powerful lasers to augment the radiation pressure on the sail to give spacecraft uh, high velocities to get to other stars. I, I uh, really would encourage listeners to go check out some of his pioneering work uh, done for uh, the British Interplanetary Society and in an open literature out there. I mean, very, very creative thinker. The technologies aren't here yet. I, I think we're taking the baby steps toward enabling those. But these beamed energy sails are one of the few technologies that doesn't require new physics to enable us to go to the stars someday. Yeah, we'll leave warp drive out of the uh, discussion and, and keep it in the real world for the time being. What do you think of, uh, it's really an embryonic effort at this, uh, at this stage, but of what the uh, Breakthrough Starshot uh, project is uh, uh, hoping to lay out with these these very tiny sails, one meter wide and and very very tiny uh, electronics at uh, at the center of that sail. It's really interesting actually because when you look at the trades of how you would do these beamed energy sails, you have the forward approach, which is fairly large sails and still powerful lasers. The other option is much smaller sails and even more powerful lasers, right? Yeah. And so their idea is to use these extremely powerful ground-based lasers, deploy these small sails with very, very lightweight payloads, and send those very rapidly out of the solar system. The physics works. The engineering is going to be tough. We don't have the materials in hand currently. The laser system technology looks like it's scalable from what we have today, but it's a huge scale up. So I'm, I'm excited by it. I'm, I'm pleased to see that there are groups out there looking at what might be possible and not just looking at it, but putting money into it. I think it's exciting. And I think the work that the Planetary Society is doing and that we're doing with NIA Scout are basically the first steps toward enabling these kinds of interstellar missions. It's great. Speaking of materials, I'm going to go back to that conference that uh, you attended. Actually, you told me you were the co-chair of that uh, Bruce Betts was at. We we talked to him on the show while he was uh, still in D.C., actually. Uh, what was that about, and, and what kind of promise does uh, do these what, uh, metamaterials offer? You better tell us what they are, first of all. Well, I'll give a shout out to the uh, actual, the, the father of this meeting. It's uh, Dr. Grover Schwartzlander at Rochester Institute of Technology. He has a, a NASA Innovative Advanced Concept Study to look at these metamaterials for applications to, to solar and beamed energy sailing. And basically, metamaterials are, are, are thin film materials that have optical properties tailored to specific applications. So in other words, with, with our sail and with your sail, 
you basically have a reflective sheet, uh, some kind of plastic that has aluminum on it that reflects light. Well, what if when the light hits the sail, instead of reflecting off according to the laws of just standard optics, you can direct that light to emit from the sail in whatever direction you want, which means that the reaction force from that light is not necessarily in the direction you think it's going to be. It can be in wherever direction you want it to be. And what's innovative about that for what we're trying to do is, and it gets lost in the math pretty quickly, so forgive me, but when light falls on the sail, you are, if you have any imbalance in the center of mass of your spacecraft versus the center of light pressure, your sail is going to want to tip over. There's also a roll, actually a spin, that's induced uh, from sunlight on the sail over a long period of time that on our spacecraft, we have to, to get rid of that induced spin because we can't really control the sail very well by these spinning reaction wheels. But you could put these thin film materials, embed them in your solar sail to change the direction at which light is emitted from the sail to basically passively stabilize them. And you don't have to do any kind of active control to control all this momentum. Now, for solar sails, that's great because it doesn't take a lot of area and you have a lot of time and you can manipulate that material to do what you want. Uh, but for these beamed energy sails where you're, where you're really accelerating rapidly, it could be an enabler for them because uh, they may have to manage their momentum very, very rapidly. And that means you want to have as much passive control as you can built into the sail material. And these tailored materials and the way they reflect and emit light could do that for you. So it was at the uh, Optical Society of America in Washington, uh, sponsored by several different organizations, including NASA um, and and others. And uh, it was exciting. Very exciting. And we can hear this in your voice. I'm sure anybody listening to this right now can hear the passion and enthusiasm that you bring to this. And since you said that you were a, a longtime friend of Robert Forward, who, like you, uh, as you said, was not just someone who dealt with the real world and uh, real science, but was a science fiction writer. I'll come back to that. Is this something that you've been passionate about for a long time? Well, it is for me. And, and in fact, it's, uh, when, when I look at the roots of my introduction to solar sails, it came from a, a science fiction novel I read in high school by the great writers Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell. It was called The Moat in God's Eye. Oh, I know it well, yeah. And uh, it was about aliens that were about to invade riding these big laser-powered light sail ships, right? And uh, that was way exciting for me in high school. And at the time, I knew I wanted to study physics, and I knew I wanted to work for NASA. But I never in my wildest dreams imagined that I would get to NASA and have the opportunity to work on solar sails and light sails. So it was an inspiration. And uh, in my career, probably almost 20 years ago, uh, the opportunity arose uh, in basically a meeting that said, hey, is there somebody who could, could start working this area and we need to investigate the opportunities? The first thing that came to mind were Niven and Pornell and, and, and the work of Robert Forward. And so I raised my hand and the rest is how I ended up spending the next part of my career. It all goes back to that point and those kinds of interactions. I, I can't emphasize enough uh, the importance of getting young people fired up about science and and the things that they uh, get their curiosity piqued about when they're teenagers, they can take it and run with it sometime in their career if they're very lucky. We could leave it at that, but I, I also want to ask you about your team. And, and something that is uh, maybe not unique about this team is that uh, this project is uh, the work of two different NASA centers, yours, Marshall Space Flight Center, and the one in our neighborhood, Jet Propulsion Lab. How's that working out? 
What works out really well um, that I should have mentioned early in the interview uh, with, with the solar sail system, Marshall Space Flight Center here in Huntsville is developing the sail propulsion system. Uh, the people who have had a lot of experience developing deep space spacecraft are those folks at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And so they are developing the spacecraft. And uh, Dr. Julie Castillo-Roger is the uh, project scientist who is developing and will be doing the asteroid reconnaissance work, the science, once we get to the target. Uh, me and my team are responsible for getting her and her camera there so she can mm. do that science. What's the outlook for uh, launch of EM-1 uh, with uh, NEA Scout on board? Well, I think the outlook is promising. I, I don't really work on the launch vehicle side of things. They give us these documents, which are all the environments and the interfaces we have to meet. Uh, all I can say is that we are currently on schedule that we've been given to deliver our hardware to the launch vehicle. And uh, when it flies, we're looking forward to having a good ride. Les, I don't know where you find time to write books as well, but you had two that came out uh, this year in February, one about the real world of science and one science fiction. Uh, tell me just a word or two about graphene, uh, which maybe I should have asked when we were talking about innovative materials. Well, I have to give the caveat that my science fiction writing is totally different and separate from my work at NASA. I do that all on my own time. Uh, I don't want people to think I'm doing that while I'm on the NASA clock because I don't. But there is an overlap. And the overlap is actually, you could see it at this OSA Metamaterials Workshop. I was interested, graphene, first off, for those who don't know what graphene is, uh, graphene is a form of carbon that is just carbon in a unique bonding relationship so that it's flat like a sheet of paper, one atom thick. It was discovered in 2004. The discoverers got a Nobel Prize in 2010. What's so cool about it, though, it is one atom thick, 300 times stronger than steel by weight. Wow. And one of the most electrically conductive materials that we've ever discovered. And when I heard about it, my first thought was this would make a great, lightweight, strong and robust solar sail substrate. And so my interest in graphene uh, started with solar sailing because I thought, we've got to build a sail out of this. Unfortunately, the technology isn't there yet. The material samples are very, very small, but it, it got me interested in graphene. And then I had an opportunity to uh, write a popular science book, nonfiction, uh, for the layperson, actually, with a good friend of mine, a uh, recent PhD in applied chemistry, Dr. Joe Meany. The rest is history. The book came out uh, last February. And we were reviewed by the journal Nature and excerpted in American Scientist. And there's a whole chapter in there about how we can use these for solar sailing in the future. So I've, I've got a foot in both worlds with that book. Anything you want to say about uh, this latest uh, science fiction novel, which I hope I pronounce this correctly, Mission to Methony? Uh, methony or methany. It, it's uh, debatable as to what the right way to say it is. Methany is, is actually a really interesting moon of Saturn. Uh, it's shaped like an egg. It's less than a mile long, and it's the lightest, least dense moon in the solar system. So for a science fiction writer like me, of course, it's an, it's an old alien spacecraft, right? <laughs> so um, in the story, it is a, it's my, my attempt at first contact. Uh, we, we all look up into the sky, and the folks at the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence have been listening for signals of ET, and we all wonder if we're alone. The novel is my attempt to answer the question of are we alone and what's out there? So it's a near-term science fiction novel set in about the 2060s. I will say that in the opening chapter, solar sails feature prominently. 
Uh, the idea for the book actually came to me in uh, a risk management meeting here at work. I had to quickly put it out of my head to finish the day at work, but I went home that night and outlined the novel. Sold it to the publisher at Bay and Books, uh, who's been my publisher of my novels, and uh, it came out actually on the same day as the Graphene book came out from Random House. So it was a, it was a big month for me last February. Yeah, a big day, I would say as well. A big day. It was exciting. <laughs> it's been fun. Both books have done very well, and I'm excited because, quite frankly, um, I know what an influence reading stuff like that had on me, and I've reached the point in my career. Um, I've been at NASA 28 years that I'm really thinking about that next generation. And I'm trying to, in a way, I'm kind of trying to pay it forward, I guess. You and us both. And you've got at least one more big inspiring day ahead uh, that we all look forward to with the launch of EM-1 and the release of uh, NEA Scout, NEA or Near Earth Asteroid uh, Scout, a solar sail that will begin to make its way out to uh, one of those asteroids that crosses the path of our planet. Les, it has been great fun talking with you. Best of luck with uh, this mission as it goes forward and, and uh, with everything else. Well, thank you so much, and uh, best of luck with Light Sail 2. I will pass that along to uh, Bruce and all of my colleagues. We've been talking with physicist Les Johnson. He's the principal investigator for NEA or NEA Scout. He's uh, out at the Marshall Space Flight Center that we visited not too many weeks ago in Huntsville, Alabama. And as you heard, he's the author of, well, actually several science fiction and science fact books, including Mission to Methani or Methoni. Uh, just published in uh, February. You can find the, these books in all the usual places like Amazon, and they're getting good reviews. Uh, we're going to talk to yet another recent author. Uh, it's time for our regular visit with Bruce Betts. Everybody's back home. Bruce Betts is back at uh, the Planetary Society. He's the chief scientist for the Planetary Society, and and I'm back home from vacation. It's good to be back, and uh, I, I hope you're happy to be back as well. Oh, always happy to be back home. I don't know if you've heard yet, but uh, your name came up in our discussion with Les Johnson today. You were both at that Metamaterials conference, but he talked about uh, how closely uh, he has, his team has been working with the Planetary Society uh, to develop solar sails. Yeah, and we're very excited about working uh, with his team and, and the NEA Scout mission. They're kind of taking the next step beyond what we're doing, and, and we're transferring what knowledge we gain in our missions to them. Good deal. What's up other than solar sailing? <laughs> uh, well, by popular demand, I am shaking up the evening sky. And uh, <laughs> I already sent Venus away. I said, get out of here, Venus. And now I'm, I'm going to send Jupiter away. But before it goes away completely, I'm going to have Mercury join the mix because we just haven't, haven't hung out with Mercury in a while. It's so, what's the word? Mercurian. Yeah, Imperial? it's it, it's so it's so Beppy Colombo. It's so we'll come back to that. It, look in the evening sky. You're going to have to look low in the west. Jupiter's getting getting lower and lower, but looking like a super bright star soon after sunset. Low in the west, Mercury will be rising higher as the nights go along for the next couple of weeks. While Jupiter gets lower, they'll be closest on October thirtieth. Mercury being much dimmer, but still looking like a bright star. And then over towards the south, the southwest is Saturn looking yellowish and Mars uh, in the south still looking very nice, bright, reddish star-like object is Mars. But let me also give you for at least our uh, northern hemisphere people, it's autumn. So you should check out the summer triangle, huh. which oddly enough works out. 
If you look uh, pretty much straight overhead in the early evening, once it's nice and dark, you will see three bright stars, not surprisingly, forming a triangle, kind of a spread out triangle. That's Vega, Deneb, and Altair. They also have their little constellations, including the Northern Cross, Cygnus the Swan, which is tied to Deneb. Uh, you can uh, look it up if, if you're confused, but try just looking straight up in the evening and checking out three bright stars and know that it's the Summer Triangle. Well, thank you. That's a nice enhancement, and I, I assume that um, you are inspired by that that lovely book that we're going to give away uh, again in the new contest today, uh, the one that you wrote, Astronomy for Kids. I am indeed. I'm trying to inspire others, but writing it inspired me. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. We move on to this week in space history. Uh, one of the veteran spacecraft, it's, it's not at Voyager levels yet, but Odyssey, the Mars Odyssey spacecraft went into orbit 17 years ago this week, <laughs> and it's still returning great data. How long can this last? It is one of the few spacecraft that's older than planetary radio. <laughs> that's true, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I will never catch up with Voyager 1 and 2, but, uh, but right. neither will anybody else, so that's okay. <laughs> well, that's true. No, no, one, no one yet. No one launched so far, that's for sure. All right. We move on to Horrendum Space Fact. <laughs> you, you mentioned Bepi Colombo. It's the uh, European Space Agency-led mission with the Japanese Space Agency. And you may have wondered, why is it called Beppe Colombo? Well, it's named after Giuseppe, nickname Beppe Colombo, who is a scientist, mathematician, engineer at University of Padua, Italy. He was the first person to really outline and implement the interplanetary gravity assist maneuver, uh, which was used by... Mariner 10, for the first time, first time a spacecraft used it, a gravity assist going by Venus to get to Mercury. It all comes back around, hence Beppe Colombo. Isn't that a great nickname? I want to be, would you call me Beppe from now on? Sure, Beppe. <laughs> I, I hope you meant it, because now you have to live with it. Oh, yeah. What have I gotten myself into? Well, I'm not Italian, so I might get a nasty letter from the consulate. Married to Italian, sort of. But yeah, really. I, I don't think she will ever call me Beppy. <laughs> well, you just leave it to us at the Planetary Society. We'll call you Beppy. <laughs> All right, we move on to the trivia contest. No, we don't, because you have to tell me what we're doing for the trivia contest. I keep getting confused. Is this oh, the we are indeed having a trivia contest. We're back in business fully. We have a, a winner to name this week. And uh, this is, you asked people, what rocket launched uh, the Apollo 7 crew 50 years ago? So I asked what rocket launched the <laughs> Apollo 7 crew 50 years ago. How'd we do, Matt? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. We did well. Everybody is back in the swing. I think that people missed us for that week because we got a big response. Here's the answer that we got from Wayne Likely. Wayne Likely in Seattle, Washington, has not won in four and a half years, but he is a three-time winner. So it's just been a long time. So, Wayne, thanks for sticking wow. with us. Uh, it was worth it, I hope, for many reasons. He says it was the Saturn 1B that carried those three guys up into low Earth orbit. That is correct. Wayne, congratulations. Guess what? You're going to get a Planetary Radio t-shirt, a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account, and 
Remember, we offered a signed copy of John Logston's new book, The Penguin Book of Outer Space Exploration, The Incredible Story of Human Spaceflight. It's a, it's a really fun. It's all those original documents that uh, put us where we are today in uh, in space across the cosmos. Uh, it's a it, it's a fascinating read. Anyway, thank you, Wayne. Uh, as you, I'm sure know, I have some others. Dennis Hands in Greensboro, North Carolina. He says Alan Shepard and Deke Slayton they were not on that mission. I don't know if they liked the Saturn One B. They they called it an angry, spitting, snarling Wolverine, which shook and rattled its human cargo. Oh yeah, that sounds like uh, someone who likes something. That's what I call you. That's I was on that ride. I think at uh, at a local amusement park too. <laughs> um, David Shanks in Sherrerville, Indiana. He says that the three guys who did go, their command module didn't have a name other than CM-101. It wasn't until Apollo 9's launch with a lunar excursion module, lunar module, that the two vehicles needed names. All three guys, though, had head colds, and it made them kind of cranky. Wally Shira was kind of famous for getting cranky on that flight, right? Indeed, there was a, a mi- miniature rebellion. Here's another one from Mark Little, our friend in Northern Ireland. He says, and I'd forgotten about this, but if you look at the diagrams of the Saturn, uh, not diagrams, if you look at the photos of the Saturn 1B on the launch pad, it's the same launch pad that the Saturn 5 used, but it was shorter, quite a bit shorter. So it used a, quote, milk stool, unquote, <laughs> to raise it up to the complex's 39 umbilicals. And then he adds, probably unnecessarily, the stool was a reuse of one design for farmers with 128-foot-tall mutant cows. <laughs> <laughs> but you've seen those pictures, right? No. Um, no? <laughs> no, I said moo. Manu. Yeah, right. I get it. Oh, I get stop it. it. Yes. Milk stool. I really not a, never thought of it that way. Steve Peterson, finally. Uh, this is terrific. He's in Clayton, North Carolina now, but I guess he wasn't always. He says he it was fun working at North American, that's North American Aviation, when the Apollo program was active. We got to go to the Downey facility and see the capsules when they returned. He says he has pictures, I assume, that he took of Apollo 7. Oh, I'm sorry, he doesn't have them of Apollo 7, but he does have them of 8 and 11 through 17, which is a, what, a, what a wonderful memory to uh, yeah. have. Thank you for sharing it with us, Steve. And uh, we're ready to go on. As you know, I was late because I was getting weird with this trivia contest. So hopefully you all will like it. You can let Matt know if you never want something like this again. Got to concentrate for this one. Out of the strange mind of Bruce Betts. (laughs) In an unrelated coincidence, what sequence of events that will occur for the Bepi Colombo mission can be characterized by the first three primorials Yes, that's right. Primorials, the multiplication of prime numbers. So the first three primorials would be one, two, and six. What sequence of events that will occur for the Bepi-Colombo mission can be characterized by the first three primorials, one, two, and six? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest and (laughs) say how much you love or hate this as well as give it (laughs) Okay. I would say that everybody who enters this is going to get a prize, but (laughs) I don't think we'll do that. Uh, Primorials. That's a totally new term to me. At first, I thought you said primordials, and we were going to have some soup. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, you know, you can have soup, but uh, that's not it. No, no, I want to. I, I thought, hey, that's the sequence of factorials, but factorials technically are one, one, two, six, but primorials multiplying the first prime numbers with each other, you get one, two, and six, which is oh, so wonderfully weird and significant. All right, two mathematicians, you've got until Halloween. Uh, you have until 8 a.m. October 31st, 2018, to uh, get us the answer to this one. And you will win yourself a Planetary Radio t-shirt. You can check it out in the Chop Shop store. That's where the Planetary Society store is, all of our great uh, merchandise. And a 200-point-itelescope.net account, which you can also donate if you would like, that worldwide network of uh, telescopes. Last but far from least... A certain book that has already been mentioned on the show, Astronomy for Kids, How to Explore Outer Space with Binoculars, a Telescope, or Just Your Eyes, and What Eyes They Are, by Dr. Bruce Betts. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about calling Matt Beppy with <laughs> one P, appropriately. That That's because of the one T in Matt Kaplan. Yeah, I got it, I got it. Can I ask you an ethical question? Because now I want soup. And how early can you have dinner and still call it dinner and not a late lunch? I believe you have to finish the last bite of lunch and then you're good. <laughs> you can go straight on. I knew I could count on you. He's the chief scientist for the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts. And he joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who sail on the light of the sun. Mary Liz Bender is our associate producer, and that special Halloween version of our theme comes from the delightfully demonic mind of Paul Burgell, music director for Phantom Creep Theater and Phantom Creep Radio in New York City. I'm Matt Kaplan, Ad Astra. Astra.